Chapter 15, Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 2, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 15. The Chicago Convention. In recognition of the growing power and importance of the Great West, the Republican National Convention was called to meet in Chicago on the 16th of May. The former presidential canvass, though resulting in the defeat of Fremont, had nevertheless shown the remarkable popular strength of the Republican Party in the country at large. Since then, its double victory in Congress against LeCompton and at the congressional elections over the representatives who supported LeCompton, gave it confidence and aggressive activity. But now it received a new inspiration and impetus from the Charleston disruption. Former possibility was suddenly changed to strong probability of success in the coming presidential election. Delegates were not only quickened with a new zeal for their principles, the growing chances spurred them to fresh efforts in behalf of their favorite candidates. Those who had been prominently named were diverse in antecedents and varied in locality, each, however, presenting some strong point of popular interest. Seward of New York, a Whig of preeminent fame, Chase of Ohio, a talented and zealous anti-slavery Democrat, an original founder of the new party. Dayton of New Jersey, an old Whig high in personal worth and political service. Cameron of Pennsylvania, a former Democrat, now the undisputed leader of an influential tariff state. Bates of Missouri, an able and popular anti-slavery Whig from a slave state. And last, but by no means least in popular estimation, Lincoln of Illinois. The idea of making Lincoln a presidential candidate had occurred to the minds of many during his growing fame. The principle of natural selection plays no unimportant part in the politics of the United States. There are always hundreds of newspapers ready to nail to the masthead the name of any individual which begins to appear frequently in dispatches and editorials. A few months after the close of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and long before the Ohio speeches and the Cooper Institute address, a warm personal friend, the editor of an Illinois newspaper, wrote him an invitation to lecture, and added in his letter, I would like to have a talk with you on political matters, as to the policy of announcing your name for the presidency while you are in our city. My partner and myself are about addressing the Republican editors of the state on the subject of a simultaneous announcement of your name for the presidency. To this, Lincoln replied, As to the other matter you kindly mention, I must in candor say I do not think myself fit for the presidency. I certainly am flattered and gratified that some partial friends think of me in that connection, but I really think it best for our cause that no concerted effort such as you suggest should be made. A much more hopeful ambition filled his mind. Notwithstanding his recent defeat, 
He did not think that his personal contest with Douglas was yet finished. He had the faith and the patience to wait six years for a chance to repeat his political tournament with the little giant. From his letter quoted in a previous chapter, we know he had resolved to fight in the ranks in 1860. From another, we know how generously he kept faith with other Republican aspirants. If Trumbull and I were candidates for the same office, you would have a right to prefer him, and I should not blame you for it. But all my acquaintance with you induces me to believe you would not pretend to be for me while really for him. But I do not understand Trumbull and myself to be rivals. You know I am pledged not to enter a struggle with him for the seat in the Senate now occupied by him. And yet I would rather have a full term in the Senate than in the presidency. This spirit of fairness in politics is also shown by the following letter, written apparently in response to a suggestion that Cameron and Lincoln might form a popular presidential ticket. Yours of the 24th, ultimate, was forwarded to me from Chicago. It certainly is important to secure Pennsylvania for the Republicans in the next presidential contest, but not unimportant to also secure Illinois. As to the ticket you name, I shall be heartily for it after it shall have been fairly nominated by a Republican National Convention, and I cannot be committed to it before. For my single self, I have enlisted for the permanent success of the Republican cause, and for this object I shall labor faithfully in the ranks, unless, as I think not probable, the judgment of the party shall assign me a different position. If the Republicans of the great state of Pennsylvania shall present Mr. Cameron as their candidate for the presidency, such an endorsement of his fitness for the place could scarcely be deemed insufficient. Still, as I would not like the public to know, so I would not like myself to know, I had entered a combination with any man to the prejudice of all others whose friends respectively may consider them preferable. Not long after these letters, at some date near the middle of the winter, 1859-60, to 60, the leaders of the Republican Party of Illinois met at Springfield, the capital of the state, and in a more pressing and formal manner requested him to permit them to use his name as a presidential candidate. More with the idea of securing his nomination for vice president than with any further expectation. To this he now consented. His own characteristic language, however, plainly reveals that he believed this would be useful to him in his future senatorial aspirations solely, and that he built no hopes whatever on national preferment. A quarrel was going on among rival aspirants to the Illinois governorship, and Lincoln had written a letter to relieve a friend from the imputation of treachery to him in the recent senatorial contest. This act of justice was now used to his disadvantage in the scramble for the Illinois presidential delegates. And he wrote as follows. I am not in a position where it would hurt much for me not to be nominated on the national ticket, but I am where it would hurt some for me not to get the Illinois delegates. What I expected when I wrote the letter to Messrs. Dole and others is now happening. Your discomfited assailants are more bitter against me. 
and they will for revenge upon me lay to the Bates egg in the south and to the Seward egg in the north and go far towards squeezing me out in the middle with nothing. Can you not help me a little in this matter in your end of the vineyard? The extra vigilance of his friends thus invoked. It turned out that the Illinois Republicans sent a delegation to the Chicago Convention full of personal devotion to Lincoln and composed of men of the highest standing and of consummate political ability. And their enthusiastic efforts in his behalf among the delegations from other states contributed largely to the final result. The political campaign had now so far taken shape that its elements and chances could be calculated with more than usual accuracy. The Charleston Convention had been disrupted on the 30th of April and adjourned on May 3rd. The nomination of John Bell by the Constitutional Union Party occurred on May 10th. The Chicago Convention met on May 16th, and while there was at that date great uncertainty as to whom the deserved fragments in, of the Democratic Party would finally nominate, little doubt existed that both the Douglas and Buchanan wings would have candidates in the field. With their opponents thus divided, the plain policy of the Republicans was to find a candidate on whom a thorough and hearty union of all the elements of the opposition could be secured. The party was constituted of somewhat heterogeneous material. A lingering antagonism remained between former Whigs and Democrats, protectionists and free traders, foreign-born citizens and know-nothings. Only on a single point were all thus far agreed, opposition to the extension of slavery. But little calculation was needed to show that at the November polls, four doubtful states would decide the presidential contest. Buchanan had been elected in 1856 by the vote of all the slave states, save Maryland, with the help of the free states of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, and California. Change the first four, or even the first three of these free states to the Republican side, and they, with the Fremont states of 1856, would elect the president against all the others combined. The congressional elections of 1858 demonstrated that such a change was possible. But besides this, Pennsylvania and Indiana were, like Ohio, known as October states, because they held elections for state officers in that month, and they would at that early date give such an indication of sentiment as would forecast their November vote for president, and exert a powerful, perhaps a decisive, influence on the whole canvas. What candidate could most easily carry New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Illinois became therefore the vital question among the Chicago delegates, and especially among the delegates from the four pivotal states themselves. William H. Seward of New York was naturally the leading candidate. He had been longest in public life, and was highest in official rank. He had been governor of the greatest state of the Union and had nearly completed a second term of service in the United States Senate. Once a prominent Whig, his 
antecedents coincided with those of the bulk of the Republican Party. His experience ran through two great agitations of the slavery question. He had taken important part in the Senate discussions, which ended in the compromise measures of 1850, and in the new contest growing out of the Nebraska bill his voice had been heard in every debate. He was not only firm in his anti-slavery convictions, but decided in his utterances. Discussing the admission of California, he proclaimed the Higher Law Doctrine in 1850. Reviewing Dred Scott and Lecompton, he announced the irrepressible conflict in 1858. He had tact as well as talent. He was a consummate politician as well as a profound statesman. Such a leader could not fail of a strong following. And his supporters came to Chicago in such numbers and of such prominence and character as seemed to make his nomination a foregone conclusion. The delegation from New York, headed by William M. Everts, worked and voted throughout as a unit for him not merely to carry out their constituents' wishes, but with a personal zeal that omitted no exertion or sacrifice. They showed a want of tact, however, in carrying their street demonstrations for their favorite to excess. They crowded together at the Richmond House, making that hotel the Seward headquarters. With too much ostentation, they marched every day to the convention with music and banners and when mention was made of doubtful states. Their more headlong members talked together too much of the campaign funds they intended to raise. All this occasioned a reaction, a certain mental protest among both Eastern and Western delegates against what have come to be characterized as machine methods. The positive elements in Seward's character and career had developed as always happens, strong antagonisms. One of the earliest symptoms among the delegates at Chicago was the existence of a strong undercurrent of opposition to his nomination. This opposition was as yet latent and scattered here and there among many state delegations, but very intense, silently watching its opportunity and ready to combine upon any of the other candidates. The opposition soon made a discovery that of all the names mentioned, Lincoln's was the only one offering any chance for such a combination. It needed only the slightest comparison of notes to show that Dayton had no strength save the New Jersey vote. Chase, little outside of the Ohio delegation, Cameron, none but that of Pennsylvania, and that Bates had only his Missouri friends and a few in border slave states, which could cast no electoral vote for the Republicans. The policy of the anti-Seward delegates was therefore quickly developed to use Lincoln's popularity as a means to defeat Seward. The credit of the nomination is claimed by many men and by several delegations, but every such claim is wholly fictitious. Lincoln was chosen not by personal intrigue, but through political necessity. The Republican Party was a purely defensive organization. The South had created the crisis, which the new party was compelled to overcome. The ascendancy of the free states, not the personal fortunes of Seward, hung in the balance. Political victory at the ballot box, 
or a transformation of the institutions of government was the immediate alternative before the free states. Victory could be secured only by help of the electoral votes of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Illinois. It was therefore a simple problem. What candidate could carry these states? None could answer this question so well as their own delegates, and these, when interrogated, still further reduced the problem by the reply that Seward certainly could not. These four states lay on the borderland, next to the South and to slavery. Institutions inevitably mold public sentiment, and a certain tenderness towards the property of neighbors and friends infected their people. They shrunk from the reproach of being abolitionized. They would vote for a conservative Republican, but Seward and radicalism and higher law would bring them inevitable defeat. Who then could carry these doubtful pivotal states? The second branch of the question also found its ready answer. The contest in these states would be not against a territorial slave code, but against popular sovereignty, not with Buchanan's candidate, but with Douglas. And for Douglas, there was only a single antagonist, tried and true, Abraham Lincoln. Such, we may reasonably infer, was the substance of the discussion and argument which ran through the caucus room of the delegates day and night during the 16th and 17th of May. Meanwhile, the Seward men were not idle, Having the large New York delegation to begin with, and counting the many positive committals from other states, their strength and organization seemed impregnable. The opposing delegations, each still nursing the chances of its own candidate, hesitated to give any positive promises to each other. At midnight of May 17th, Horace Greeley, one of Seward's strongest opponents, and perhaps better informed than any other single delegate, telegraphed his conclusion that the opposition to Governor Seward cannot concentrate on any candidate and that he will be nominated. Chicago was already a city of a hundred thousand souls, thirty to forty thousand visitors, full of life, hope, ambition, most of them from the progressive group of encircling northwestern states and strung to the highest tension of political excitement had come to attend the convention. Charleston had shown a great party in the ebb tide of disintegration, tainted by the spirit of disunion. Chicago exhibited a great party springing to life and power, every motive and force compelling cooperation and growth. The rush and spirit of the great city, and the enthusiasm and hope of its visitors, blended and reacted upon each other as if by laws of chemical affinity. Something of the freshness and sweep of the prairie winds exhilarated the delegates and animated the convention. No building in the city of Chicago at that time contained a hall with sufficient room for the sittings of the great assemblage. A temporary frame structure, which the Committee of Arrangements christened the Wigwam, was therefore designated and erected for this special use. It was said to be large enough to hold 10,000 persons, and whether or not that estimate was entirely accurate, a prodigious concourse certainly gathered each day within its walls. The first day's session, May 16th, 
demonstrated the successful adaptation of the structure to its uses. Participants and spectators alike were delighted with the ease of ingress and egress, the comfortable division of space, the perfection of its acoustic qualities. Every celebrity could be seen, every speech could be heard. The routine of organization, the choice of officers and committees, and the presentation of credentials were full of variety and zest. Governor Edwin D. Morgan of New York, as chairman of the National Republican Committee, called the convention to order, and when he presented the historic name of David Wilmot of Pennsylvania for temporary chairman, the faith of the audience in the judgment of the managers was already won. The report of the Committee on Organization in the afternoon made George Ashman of Massachusetts a most skillful parliamentarian, ready in decision and felicitous in his phrases, the permanent presiding officer. One thing was immediately and specially manifest. An overflowing heartiness and deep feeling pervaded the whole house. No need of a clack, no room for sham demonstration here. The galleries were as watchful and earnest as the platform. There was something genuine, elemental, uncontrollable in the moods and manifestations of the vast audience. Seats and standing room were always packed in advance, and as the delegates entered by their own separate doors, the crowd easily distinguished the chief actors. Blair, Giddings, Greeley, Everts, Kelly, Wilmot, Schurz, and others were greeted with spontaneous applause, which, rising at some one point, grew and rolled from side to side and corner to corner of the immense building, brightening the eyes and quickening the breath of every inmate. With the second day's proceedings, the interest of delegates and spectators was visibly increased, first by some sharp shooting speeches about credentials, and secondly by the main event of the day, the report from the platform committee. Much difficulty was expected on this score, but a little time had smoothed the way with almost magical effect. The great outpouring of delegates and people, the self-evident success of the gathering, the harmonious, almost joyous beginning of the deliberations in the first day session were more convincing than logic in solidifying the party. These were the premonitions of success. Before such signs of victory, all spirit of faction was fused into a generous glow of emulation. The eager convention would have accepted a weak or defective platform. The committee, on the contrary, reported one framed with remarkable skill. It is only needful to recapitulate its chief points. It denounced disunion, Lecomptonism, the property theory, the dogma that the Constitution carries slavery to territories, the reopening of the slave trade, the popular sovereignty and non-intervention fallacies, and denied the authority of Congress of a territorial legislature or of any individuals to give legal existence to slavery in any territory of the United States. It opposed any change in the naturalization laws. It recommended an adjustment of import duties to encourage the industrial interests of the whole country. 
It advocated the immediate admission of Kansas, free homesteads to actual settlers, river and harbor improvements of a national character, and a railroad to the Pacific Ocean. Bold on points of common agreement, it was unusually successful in avoiding points of controversy among its followers, or offering points for criticism to its enemies. It is not surprising that Charleston and Chicago should furnish many striking contrasts. At the Charleston Convention, the principal personal incident was a long and frank speech from one Galden, a Savannah slave trader, in advocacy of the reopening of the African slave trade. In the Chicago Convention, the exact and extreme opposite of such a theme created one of the most interesting of the debates. The platform had been read and received with tremendous cheers. When Mr. Giddings of Ohio, who was everywhere eager to insist upon what he designated as the primal truths of the Declaration of Independence, moved to amend the first resolution by incorporating in it the phrase which announces the right of all men to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The convention was impatient to adopt the platform without change. Several delegates urged objections, one of them pertinently observing that there were also many other truths enunciated in the Declaration of Independence. Mr. President, said he, I believe in the Ten Commandments, but I do not want them in a political platform. Mr. Giddings' amendment was voted down, and the anti-slavery veteran, feeling himself wounded in his most cherished philosophy, rose and walked out of the convention. Personal friends grieved that he should feel offended, and doubly sorry that the general harmony should be marred by even a single dissent, followed Mr. Giddings and sought to change his purpose. While thus persuading him, the discussion had passed to the second resolution, when George William Curtis of New York seized the chance to renew substantially Mr. Giddings' amendment. There were new objections, but Mr. Curtis swept them away with a captivating burst of oratory. I have to ask this convention, said he, whether they are prepared to go upon the record before the country as voting down the words of the Declaration of Independence. I rise simply to ask gentlemen to think well before, upon the free prairies of the West, in the summer of 1860, they dared to wince and quail before the assertions of the men of Philadelphia in 1776, before they dared to shrink from repeating the words that these great men enunciated. This was a strong appeal, and took the convention by storm, wrote a recording journalist. A new vote formally embodied this portion of the Declaration of Independence in the Republican platform, and Mr. Giddings, overjoyed at his triumph, had already returned to his seat when the platform as a whole was adopted with repeated and renewed shouts of applause that seemed to shake the wigwam. The third day of the convention, Friday, May 18th, found the doors besieged by an excited multitude. The preliminary business was disposed of. The platform was made, and everyone knew the balloting would begin. The New York delegation felt assured of Seward's triumph and made an effort to have its march to the convention with banners and music, unusually full and imposing. It proved a costly display, 
for while the New York irregulars were parading the streets, the Illinoisians were filling the wigwam. When the Seward procession arrived, there was little room left except the reserved seats for the delegates. New York deceived itself in another respect. It counted on the full New England strength, whereas more than half of it had already resolved to cast its vote elsewhere. This defection in advance virtually ensured Seward's defeat. New York and the extreme Northwest were not sufficiently strong to nominate him, and in the nature of things he could not hope for much help from the conservative middle and border states. But this calculation could not as yet be so accurately made. Caucusing was active up to the very hour when the convention met, and many delegations went to the wigwam with no definite program beyond the first ballot. What pen shall adequately describe this vast audience of 10,000 souls, the low wave-like roar of its ordinary conversation, the rolling cheers that greeted the entrance of popular favorites, the solemn hush which fell upon it during the opening prayer? There was just enough of some unexpected preliminary wrangle and delay to arouse the full impatience of both convention and spectator, but at length, the names of candidates were announced. This ceremony was still in its simplicity. The more recent custom of short dramatic speeches from conspicuous and popular orators to serve as electrifying preludes had not yet been invented. I take the liberty, said Mr. Everts of New York, to name as a candidate to be nominated by this convention for the office of President of the United States, William H. Seward. I desire, followed Mr. Judd, on behalf of the delegation from Illinois to put in nomination as a candidate for President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. Then came the usual succession of possible and alternative aspirants who were to be complimented by the first votes of their states. William L. Dayton, Simon Cameron, Salmon P. Chase, Edward Bates, Jacob Colomer, John McLean. The fifteen minutes required by this formality had already indisputably marked out and set apart the real contestants. The complimentary statesmen were lustily cheered by their respective state delegations, but at the names of Seward and Lincoln, the whole wigwam seemed to respond together. There is something irresistibly exciting in the united voice of a great crowd. For a moment, the struggle appeared to resolve itself into a contest of throats and lungs. Indiana seconded the nomination of Lincoln, and the applause was deafening. Michigan seconded the nomination of Seward. The New York delegation rose en masse, waved their hats, and joined the galleries in a shout which doubled the volume of any yet given. Then a portion of the Ohio delegates once more seconded Lincoln and his adherents feeling themselves put upon their mettle, made an effort. I thought the Seward yell could not be surpassed, wrote a spectator, but the Lincoln boys were clearly ahead, and feeling their victory, as there was a lull in the storm, took deep breaths all round and gave a concerted shriek that was positively awful, and accompanied it with stamping that made every plank and pillar in the building quiver. The tumult gradually died away, and balloting began. 
Here we may note another contrast. The Charleston Convention was reactionary and exclusive. It followed the two-thirds rule. The Chicago Convention was progressive and liberal. It adopted majority rule. Liberal even beyond this, it admitted the territories and border slave states containing only a minority or fraction of Republican sentiment to seats and to votes. It was throwing a dragnet for success. Under different circumstances, these sentimental delegations might have become powerful in intrigue, but dominated as they were by deeper political forces, they afforded no distinct advantage to either candidate. Though it was not expected to be decisive, the first ballot foreshadowed accurately the final result. The complementary candidates received the tribute of admiration from their respective states. Vermont voted for Calamer and New Jersey for Dayton, each solid. Pennsylvania's complement to Cameron was shorn of six votes, four of which went at once for Lincoln. Ohio divided her complement, 34 for Chase, four for McLean, and at once gave Lincoln her remaining eight votes. Missouri voted solid for her candidate. Bates, who also received a scattering tribute from other delegations. But all these compliments were of little avail to their recipients, for far above each tower the aggregates of the leading candidates. Seward, 173.5. Lincoln, 102. In the groundswell of suppressed excitement which pervaded the convention, there was no time to analyze this vote. Nevertheless, delegates and spectators felt the full force of its premonition. To all who desired the defeat of Seward, it pointed out the winning man with unerring certainty. Another little wrangle over some disputed and protesting delegate made the audience almost furious at the delay, and call the roll sounded from a thousand throats. A second ballot was begun at last, and obeying a force as sure as the law of gravitation, the former complimentary votes came rushing to Lincoln. The whole ten votes of Colomer, 44 from Cameron, 6 from Chase and McLean, were now cast for him, followed by a scatter of additions along the roll call. In this ballot, Lincoln gained 79 votes, Seward only 11. The faces of the New York delegation whitened as the balloting progressed and the torrent of Lincoln's popularity became a river. The result of the second ballot was Seward, 184.5, Lincoln, 181, scattering, 99.5. When the vote of Lincoln was announced, there was tremendous burst of applause, which the chairman prudently but with difficulty controlled and silenced. The third ballot was begun amid a breathless suspense. Hundreds of pencils kept pace with the roll call and nervously marked the changes on their tally sheets. The Lincoln figures steadily grew. Votes came to him from all the other candidates, four and a half from Seward, two from Cameron, 13 from Bates, 18 from Chase, nine from Dayton, three from McLean, one from Clay. Lincoln had gained 50 and a half. Seward had lost four and a half. 
Long before the official tellers footed up their columns, spectators and delegates rapidly made the reckoning and knew the result. Lincoln, 231 and a half, Seward, 180. Counting the scattered votes, 465 ballots had been cast, and 233 were necessary to a choice. Only one and a half votes more were needed to make a nomination. A profound stillness suddenly fell upon the wigwam. The men ceased to talk and the ladies to flutter their fans. One could distinctly hear the scratching of pencils and the ticking of telegraph instruments on the reporter's tables. No announcement had been made by the chair. Changes were in order, and it was only a question of seconds who should speak first. While everyone was leaning forward in intense expectancy, David K. Carter sprang upon his chair and reported a change of four Ohio votes from Chase to Lincoln. There was a moment's pause. A teller waved his tally sheet toward the skylight and shouted a name, and then the boom of a cannon on the roof of the wigwam announced the nomination to the crowds in the streets, where shouts and salutes took up and spread the news. In the convention, the Lincoln River now became an inundation. Amid the wildest hurrahs, delegation after delegation changed its vote to the victor. A graceful custom prevails in orderly American conventions that the chairman of the vanquished delegation is first to greet the nominee with a short address of party fealty and promise of party support. Mr. Everts, the spokesman for New York, essayed promptly to perform this courteous office, but was delayed, while by the enthusiasm and confusion. The din at length subsided, and the presiding officer announced that on the third ballot, Abraham Lincoln of Illinois received 364 votes and is selected as your candidate for President of the United States. Then Mr. Everts, in a voice of unconcealed emotion, but with admirable dignity and touching eloquence, speaking for Seward and for New York, moved to make the nomination unanimous. The interest in a national convention usually ceases with the announcement of the principal nomination. It was only afterwards that the delegates realized how fortunate a selection they made by adding Hannibal Hamlin of Maine to the ticket as candidate for vice president. Mr. Hamlin was already distinguished in public service. He was born in 1809 and became a lawyer by profession. He served many years in the Maine legislature and four years as a representative in Congress. In 1848, he was chosen to fill a vacancy in the United States Senate and in 1851 was re-elected for a full term. When in 1856... The Cincinnati Convention endorsed the repeal of the Missouri Compromise, which he had opposed. Mr. Hamlin formally withdrew from the Democratic Party. In November of that year, the Republicans elected him governor of Maine, and in January 1857, re-elected him United States Senator. For the moment, the chief self-congratulation of the convention 
was that by the nomination of Lincoln it had secured the doubtful vote of the conservative states, or rather, perhaps, might it be said that it was hardly the work of the delegates. It was the concurrent product of popular wisdom. Political evolution had with scientific precision wrought the survival of the fittest. The delegates leaving Chicago on the various homeward-bound railroad trains that night saw that already the enthusiasm of the convention was transferred from the wigwam to the country. At every station, where there was a village, until after two o'clock, there were tar barrels burning, drums beating, boys carrying rails, and guns great and small banging away. The weary passengers were allowed no rest, but plagued by the thundering of the cannon, the clamor of drums, the glare of bonfires, and the whooping of boys, who were delighted with the idea of a candidate for the presidency who thirty years before split rails on the Sangamon River, classic stream, now and forevermore, and whose neighbors named him Honest. This is the end of chapter 15. Recorded by Sheila Blunt.